You're listening to a sermon podcast from Paramount Church in Columbus, Ohio. To learn more, visit ParamountColumbus.com. You guys, we are getting more of our full voice back. And that is a beautiful thing. As we sing together these important songs of our faith, and we do it in greater and greater numbers, As a family in Christ, I'm grateful for that. Let me invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to the sermon text this morning, which is Revelation chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. Revelation chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. Again, if you're using the Black Pew Bible, you can find that toward the end of the Bible on page 190. Page 190. If we took some time to think and make a list of the many dangers that hinder us in our Christian faith, we could, we could come up with a long list. You might think of some of those things in your mind right now. You likely would think of many of the same ones that I do. You might think of this world and the flesh and the devil, that as we uh, get too close to the world system of this fallen world and we take on its ways, it holds us back from knowing Christ and serving him well. The more that we indulge the remaining sin of our hearts and we chase after those lusts and cravings that remain, they they keep us back from craving Christ, keep us back from being able to sing what we just sang, that you are all to us. We also know that we have a very real enemy, the devil, who tempts us and accuses us and continues to trip us up even, many times masquerading as an angel of light. We could go on and on with this list of potential hindrances to the Christian life that we are living day by day together. But on that list, there's one that I have found so often true in my life. Maybe you find it true in yours. And that is the danger of something that doesn't sound as shocking as the world, the flesh, and the devil. It doesn't sound as serious. It doesn't maybe surface to the, to the top of our list or our minds. But it is just as important, and it is the danger of fuzzy thinking. When I was in seminary, I took some preaching classes, believe it or not, and one of the things that they taught us uh, in those classes time and time again was to watch out for the greatest enemy of good preaching, and that enemy was fuzzy thinking. That if we were to come to the Word of God with fuzzy thoughts about who he is, about what he says, about how his word communicates to us, that our preaching would be fuzzy. Sometimes I've preached some fuzzy sermons, and I preach them because of my fuzzy thinking. This is true of the Christian life also. If we come to the Christian life with fuzzy thinking about who God is and what he says, about his promises and how his word communicates to us truth and works in our hearts, we will live fuzzy Christian lives. It won't be clear. The path won't be clear. We won't be strong. We won't be able to run with clarity and and vision like the Lord gives us. And that's not what we want. We want quite the opposite. And so that's why one of our goals every Sunday that we gather together as Paramount Church is to clear our vision. That's one of my number one prayers for myself and you and for us as a church. God, give us 
clarity. Help us to see you clearly. Give us clarity. Give us vision for our lives today. Give us a vision for the life to come. That's one of the reasons why I'm so grateful for our time now in the book of Revelation is because we have such such an opportunity together on Sunday mornings to clarify our vision, to cast away the the fuzziness of our thinking at times and to, to zoom in on Christ, to exalt Him as King. And that certainly is our desire again this morning. We have an opportunity this morning to consider Jesus Christ as the great returning King who is almighty. That we would think yet again this morning about our future, about the promises that he has made that he will keep, and about one day that he will come again. That'll be our focus uh, over the next moments as we look at Revelation chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. We want to clarify our vision. We want to capture this forward-looking faith of ours this morning as we look at our King who is returning And he is returning mighty and powerful to redeem us and to take us with him into his kingdom ultimately forevermore. This morning, as we look at these verses, I want you to see first something very simple that comes right out of the text, right from the start. And that is simply this, the fact that the Almighty will come, that Jesus Christ is coming He will come. And and that is a truth that is hard for many of us to grasp and cling to because now we have kind of settled in after 2,000 years of church history. The imminent return of Christ does not seem quite so imminent. Day by day passes by. We have the same routine every day. We wake up, the sun rises, the sun sets, we go to sleep, we wake up, we do it again, and we wonder how long, O Lord, When will you come again? We go through these hard times that that pull out of us by suffering or temptation or all of the other troubles of life, this this yearning and this this crying out that, that Jesus would return. How many times have you said that? Oh God, I just wish that Jesus would come back already. Take us, take us out of this. Take us out of this life. Take us out of this pandemic. Take us out of this place. We often cry out and we wonder, where is he? And so we need this returning truth again and again that the Almighty will come. Listen to these words, just the first few words in verse 7. Behold. This is one of those words that comes up a lot in the Bible, comes a lot in Revelation because it's gathering our attention. It's setting our eyes on something important. Behold. Look at this, gaze into this, fix your heart and your eyes and your mind and all that you are on this. He is coming and he is coming, as John says, with the clouds. Now we know full well from the word of God and from our careful consideration of it together as a church that we have been given something beautiful in the Christian faith. We have been given an historic faith. We've been given an historic faith that is historic unlike any other religion or faith in the world. Because when you trace back the very roots of Christianity, they don't just trace back through decades or even millennia. They trace all the way back into eternity past. 
before there was time, before there was anything, there in the mind of God was his perfect plan to bring about his redemptive story that we call the gospel that we're resting in. Our faith, unlike any other, is historic. It starts way back in eternity past and it unfolds down through the ages. We've also been given by Christ a present faith. We read over and over again those comforting truths in his word that that he is is our ever-present help in times of trouble, that he is here now. In fact, that is what separates us, one of the things that separates us from all the people of the world is that we know and we love and we belong to a living Savior who is not far away. He is present. He could not be closer to us. He is by His Spirit within us. He lives in us. He dwells in us. On top of that, He is present with us now here. We have a present faith. But friends, listen to this. None of that would matter unless we also had what we have. And that is that we have a future faith. We have a returning savior. We have a king who not only works in eternity past, we have a king that not only is is alive and at work in this present moment, we have a king who is coming again, that he will return Behold, he is coming, and he is coming with the clouds. I want us to see this morning, at least in part, what a glorious return, what a frightening return he has planned. Even just captured in those three words, with the clouds. It is a way of talking about God that captures our attention. Behold, it it ought to capture all that you are when you hear that. It is a a marvelous, mind-blowing truth that even when we read it, we might furrow our brows and say, what? Coming with the clouds, what in the world does that mean? What that means is he is coming with incredible glory. Often in scripture, God's glory is pictured or symbolized as it is here, though this is also literal, I believe, as clouds. It is a way of shrouding himself in glory, unlike any other in the natural world that we would see him this way. But this return is not only glorious, it is also frightening. Because just as the word of God pictures his glory at times with clouds, it also pictures his his wrath with clouds. He is coming in a glorious, frightening return as the Almighty. This comes up a little bit later in our text this morning in verse 8. Go ahead and look there now. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. There is no way to separate his coming with the clouds and his almightiness. 
it is a perfect coming display of just how great, just how magnificent, how powerful, how glorious, how wrathful, how incredible and marvelous he is. This has been prophesied in other places in the scriptures. Daniel chapter 7, listen to these few words. I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man coming. And he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. This is an incredible picture of what Jesus Christ will do in his own time at the end of time when he comes back on the scene for the whole world to see him, it will be an incredible moment as we're seeing this morning. It will also be a moment unlike any other because it's very different than the way that he came and the way that he first went. You notice that And when he came, he came relatively unnoticed. In fact, Isaiah the prophet reminds us of exactly that truth by saying that that when he was here on earth walking as, as one of us, that there was nothing attractive about him. There was nothing noticeable about him. In fact, if you had lived in that time, you would be one of perhaps masses of people who never saw him, though he walked right by you on the street. You had no reason to take notice of him. You had no reason to stop and ponder him. You certainly had no reason to be impressed by him. He was ordinary, average, unattractive, somewhat incognito. And even after that, you remember at his resurrection that he did reveal himself to certain people, to his disciples, to the 12, and then to a larger group. And then at one time, 500 people, but that's just 500 people. Then when he ascends back into the clouds, who's watching? Only some of the disciples are there. He spent all of his ministry on earth working out the greatest redemption in all of history, all by being relatively unnoticed, except by the people whom he wanted to notice him. But friends, that is not how it will be when he comes again. Because when he comes again, according to this text, he wants everyone to see him. And they will see his glory. And they will see his wrath. And they will see his control. What do you think about that? What do you think about that? I know that you think about it. What do you think about it? What do you think about the return of Jesus Christ? What will that be like? What will that be like for you? What will happen when he comes? What will you feel? What happens to you when you think about his coming? This is an important question for every Christian. We're going to see in a moment that you will likely feel something you don't expect. But one thing that we will feel along the way when he comes. And the one thing that we ought to feel now when we think about his coming is comfort. Listen to what 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 says about this comfort of his coming. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout 
with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who remain, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. If you're in Christ this morning, your anticipation of his coming ought to be an enormous comfort to you. I pray that it is a comfort to you. I pray that it is a growing comfort to me as we behold that he is coming and that he is coming with the clouds. This knowledge of his coming that he's revealed to us ought to comfort our hearts. It ought, it ought, to, it ought to show us his, his ultimate control and give us a renewed hope even in these days. There's so many things going on that have been going on that have rattled us, that are alarming us, they're concerning us, they're bothering us, they're troubling us. And yet there is this truth that is to be a comfort to us. And just as we read in 1 Thessalonians, it's not to be a comfort to us just once or twice, just maybe on Mondays, sometimes on Thursdays, but that every day, we actually would intentionally comfort one another with the reality that the Lord himself is coming and he is coming with the clouds. C.S. Lewis in his amazing story, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, talks about this very thing as he pictures, if you're familiar with the story, Jesus as a lion named Aslan and a world similar to ours, it has its own troubles. It has kind of fallen under a, a, a winter curse where, where, where nothing is really going right and everything seems, seems frozen and, and dangerous. There is a, a white witch who, who continually rules and, and troubles people, and yet they have this hope. They have this promise that Aslan will come again. That when Aslan comes on the scene, things will change but they're waiting. And what Lewis does here in this, this brief section, I'm going to read it to you, so just bear with me. What he does is he shows a, a glimpse in the story of what it ought to be like in our real lives when we think about the coming of Jesus Christ, that it should do something to us. And it should do something more than just be a fact, an academic thing, uh, or a point of apologetics that we, we tell people this this coldly doctrinal thing, but that it becomes warm and that it warms our hearts. Listen to what he says. They say Aslan is on the move. Perhaps he's already landed. And now a very curious thing happened. None of the children knew who Aslan was any more than you do. But the moment the beaver had spoken these words, everyone felt quite different. Perhaps it has sometimes happened to you in a dream that someone says something which you don't understand, but in the dream, it feels as if it has some enormous meaning, either a terrifying one which turns the, world, the whole dream into a, a nightmare or else a lovely meaning, too lovely to put into words, which makes the dream so beautiful that you remember it all your life and are always wishing you could get into that dream again. It was like that now. At the name of Aslan, each one of the children felt something jump in its inside. Edmund felt a sensation of mysterious horror. 
Peter felt suddenly brave and adventurous. Susan felt as if some delicious smell or some delightful strain of music had just floated by, and Lucy got the feeling you have when you wake up in the morning and realize that it's the beginning of the holidays or the beginning of summer. Now, that's such a beautiful way of capturing this incredible truth about Jesus' return and how it ought to affect us. And truly, it does affect us in different ways, doesn't it? I think at the top of that list, it affects us most differently depending upon where you stand with Jesus Christ. If you stand at odds with Jesus Christ, his returning with the clouds is bad news. It's bad news for you because it means that he is ultimately coming with this wrath in the clouds. But if you know him, it is of ultimate comfort to you that he is coming and he is coming for you. He is coming to take you to himself in a way like he has not yet. He is coming to set the world right with his ultimate power and control in the clouds. And he is coming with ultimate future grace for you. As we think about how we should apply this text this week, here's the first use of the text, that it's simply this. I hope that you and I will look up in expectation of his imminent return. We know all throughout the scriptures, when we read about this return, it's clear that no one knows when. And we're, we're kind of challenged or forbidden from, from getting wrapped up in those questions. When will it be? Will it be now? Who knows? Can we decode the, the times and know when he is coming? The ultimate point that the Bible continues to impress upon us is this. He is coming. And we are to view his return as imminent. In this very moment that he could return. We want this coming to comfort us in these days. So I hope that this week you'll give some time to, to start thinking, if you're not already, with expectation about his imminent return. Not only as an escape from the world, but as the ultimate culmination of this incredible story of redemption in which you will see him face to face and you will be with him in the clouds. You will see him. I will see him. We can't help but wonder, wonder if our redemption is drawing near. We ought to expect it to draw near. But also recognize this, that when the Almighty comes, all eyes will see him. That's what the word of God says next. In verse 7, behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. You know, you look around our culture, it's not hard to notice that we live in a culture of getting attention. And that's not a critique. I'm not knocking our culture for wanting to get attention because that's exactly what, what we love. That's what we are about as Christians. We want as much attention of the world as we can so that we can tell the truth about this coming king. This is the way that our world works. It's almost kind of hardwired in that, that we are, we are storytellers. We want attention on the stories that we have to tell. And that's true, I believe, of every person. We are people who tell what we believe. We want to spread our products. We want to increase our ranking on Amazon. We believe that what we're doing is important. But listen to this. 
even with all of our technology, you will never get every eye to see you. We could never get every single eye to see us or to hear us because that is something that only God can do. There is a separation here between our ability as creatures and what God will do when Jesus Christ returns. And it's pictured just in this reality that every eye will see him. Sometimes I read right over that. Like it doesn't really matter, but clearly it does. If it didn't matter, why would you say that? It's said because it's, it's making a point about his return, that his return will be obvious. His return will be put on display for the whole world to see. We try as desperately as we can to get our message to as many people as we can. That's true of everyone. In fact, social media and the internet has made that so much more possible than ever before. But even then, if you were to put all of the powers of the internet and social media to work for one cause, you would still not capture every eye. You still would not speak to every ear. There are still people out in the wilderness of Africa. There are those who are living in the Arctic plains. They cannot be reached that way. There is a limit to what we can do. Cristiano Ronaldo is a Portuguese footballer, soccer player in the United States. He is known uh, as being a preeminent player for Manchester United, but maybe even more than that, known for being the single most popular person on social media. He has more social media followers than anyone else in the world, this one soccer player. By some counts, nearly 500 million followers. And yet when you think about the entire world, he has only captured about 5% of all the people. No matter what he tweets, no matter what he posts, no matter what he says, he at most is going to reach 5% of the world's population. And he's the very best that we can do. But when Jesus Christ returns, every eye, every eye will see him. It's another reminder of his ultimate global purpose in the world, that he is a global God. He captures the attention of the entire world. Even better, I think this really says something to us, talk about comfort, about his omnipresence. Have you ever thought just for a moment about these few words, every eye will see him, how can you do that? How can you get every eye to see you in a moment? You cannot just surround them. It's embarrassing. But in the late summer, we get gnats in our house, flying around the kitchen. And we try to catch them all these different ways. You catch them with vinegar in a little dish, and they float down in there, and they get stuck, and they die there. Try to swat them against the, 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 the cupboards, the cabinets. Sometimes I just try to catch them. That's the most fun way to deal with them. That's entertaining because it's surprisingly difficult. Why is it that this little bug, as big as I am compared to it, I cannot simply surround it? Even with my hands, if I try to surround it, there are gaps between my fingers and they somehow fly right through. How do you do this? You cannot capture them unless first you already have them surrounded. There can be no gaps. 
how is it that every eye will see him when he comes? It's not because he will surround us. It's because he has already surrounded us. In this way, we might even say that God is our very environment. He is omnipresent. He is all around us already. He does not close his fingers tight. He's already encircled us. That's why every eye will see him. He will not surround us like an army might surround another army in a circle because even in this day and age, you could fly out the top or you could dig down into the ground. But instead, every eye will see him because he has already surrounded us on all sides. Christian, this is good news for you. He has you surrounded. He has you surrounded. Think about all of those troubling things that have been happening in your life. Think about all of those worries and all of those fears and all of those heartaches. Think about all of those losses and all of those crosses. Think about all of the weakness and fatigue, all the tears. He has you surrounded. And he has you surrounded in this incredible covenant love. One day, he will put that love on display for you when he returns with the clouds. And every eye will see him, including yours. But if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, this king who is returning with the clouds, I have some very bad news. He has you surrounded. He is your environment. And there is no escape from him. But he is full of mercy and grace for sinners like us. And he, he beckons you, he calls you with the very voice of Christ in the gospel that you would come, come in, come belong to him. Place your trust in him. Become one of his. Become one of those people that he is coming for. Because he is near. And he is near now. Jeremiah chapter 23, we read these words. Am I a God who is near, declares the Lord, and not a God far off? Can a person hide himself in hiding places so that I do not see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill the heavens and the earth, declares the Lord? If you want to put this next bit of our text to use in your life this week, there is something else you must recognize and that is recognize this reality that God is already your environment. That he already has you surrounded. He already is caring for you with his ultimate covenant love as someone who knows him. And he is working in you unlike any other. In fact, because of this, it is the recognition this week and the following week and the week after that that you and I do not live in a vacuum. But quite the contrary, you and I as believers in Christ, as a family, as a church, we live in a meticulously climate-controlled environment controlled by our God. He is watching and he is working in everything that comes in and out of this world. And he is doing it ultimately for our good 
and he is taking us somewhere to this day when every eye will see him, even, even those who pierced him. Even speaking of those who pierced him in that time of history, but even us, because it was our sin who pierced him as well. But as we recognize that he is our environment, that every eye will see him, it will change things about us. It will make us consider how we live. It will make us think about what we say. It will cause us to live with great gratitude. And I pray that it again will comfort us and put us at rest because he is ultimately at work in a way that we cannot. And one day, every eye, every eye will see him, even ours. But last, when every eye sees him, it's interesting the way the Bible talks about what that moment will be like. Because next, John says that all people will mourn over him. He goes on and he says that every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. Have you noticed how that word has really come back into usage in our culture, in our society, tribe? Everyone's talking about their tribe. All the girls have a, a date night with their girl tribe. You have your, your Buckeye tribe. You have your, your gamer tribe, your Democrat tribe, your Republican tribe. Christians are a tribe. Senior citizens are a tribe. That word has come back into use. And it is helpful to us because we read about this in the word of God. That a tribe is simply our effort to carve out a special place for us. It's a place that we would find significance or we would find a home. Sometimes we try to carve out that tribe so that we could, against Jeremiah 23, hide from him. There are people all around the world who are hiding in their tribes, in their carved out places. But here we read that all of the tribes of the earth will not only see him, but mourn over him. Not just the 12 tribes of Israel, which I think is in view here, but also a greater picture of the world, all the tribes of the world. But look at what they'll do. Look at what you will do. You will mourn. Isn't that interesting? You know, apart from this verse and some others, that's not the way I saw it going. I didn't see him coming in me mourning. I thought I would be elated. And maybe there's a sense that we'll be multiple things at one, but we will mourn. This is where you and I have to be careful. I have to be careful because when I read this, there's a kind of Christian elitism in my heart that wants to say, yeah, all you tribes out there in the world, wait because you will mourn. But the word of God says all the tribes of the earth will mourn. That when Jesus Christ comes in those glorious clouds, that everyone who sees him and all will, that we will mourn, that we will realize in that moment something that is hard for us to grasp, and that's the distance between the kind of thing that he is and the kind of thing that we are. And suddenly it will become clearer and clearer our great need for him. The distance will shorten 
and we will grieve it. We'll grieve the, the reality of how glorious he is and, 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 and how, how unglorious we are. We'll see our sin the way that we never have, and we will mourn. But that mourning will work something in us. For those who know Christ, that morning when he comes, that grief will work something in you. It will drive you to him. For others in the world, the rest of the tribes, it will drive them away when they see the difference, the distance between the kind of thing that he is and the kind of thing that they are. But for those who know him, they will run to him. Tears running down their face all about their sin, all about their great need, all about the ways that they have failed him. And when they run to him, he will take them in his arms and he will take them to himself and he will dry their tears and he will shower them with this future grace. Not everyone will respond this way in the grief. There's a passage that's coming up later in the book of Revelation that has haunted me since the first day I read it. You may know it well. It's in Revelation chapter 6. It's another picture of what will happen on that day. The kings of the earth and the eminent people and the commanders and the wealthy and the strong and every slave and free person hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us. And hide us from the sight of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who is able to stand? Fall on us. Hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. The Lamb. The Lamb who was slain for sinners like them. Hide us. You see, there will be a very different response between those who see themselves as he for whom they were, he was slain and those, those who do not. Those who do not will flee. They will wish for death. But those when he comes who know him and love him will wish for life. They'll wish for that gap to be closed and he will pull us close. And it will be a beautiful, glorious moment coming. You must not be fuzzy about this. You've got to be clear about this. You've got to think about this. You've got to focus on this, all of us. Because this is a key to our life daily in Christ. It shows us the depths of our need for him. It shows us the incredible return that he has planned and that he has sealed our fate in Christ. He has us surrounded. He is coming again. Everyone will see him. And when we do, we will run to him. We want to prepare our hearts for that day. We want to prepare other hearts for that day. And so in response to this last bit of our text, I see a great challenge for us to do what we've already been commanded to, which is to be witnesses to this truth to tell others as many as we can about Jesus Christ who is coming again because they will see him. He has surrounded them and yet he has given us such an opportunity in this moment to make him known, to tell of his incredible grace and power 
and that he will one day be coming with the clouds. Today, it could be that you need to come to Christ. You need to belong to him. You need to repent and believe in him. And I pray that that will be what what God will work in you today. Pray to him. Ask him to give you everything that you need so that you can believe in him and trust in him and follow him because he is coming. And if you already believe in him, you already know him, let's together look with expectation, with hope, with comfort that he is coming and we will run to him. So we ask him for that now. Father, please help us this morning. As we bring this time in your word to a close, we don't want your word's work in our hearts to close. We want it to continue. We want these truths to go with us as we leave here this morning and then gather again this week together and Sunday together. And God, we pray that you would work in our hearts to comfort us with these important truths about Jesus Christ who is coming again. We want to be faithful to you. We want to be witnesses for you. And we want to look forward to that day when you will come again and every eye will see you, even those who pierced you, even us. Because we know we belong to you, we will run to you. Oh God, prepare our hearts for that. Help us in this moment to to be faithful witnesses for you as we await you. And we pray that you'd help us to await you with eagerness. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. (laughs) 